if you're turning with me in your Bibles today, we're going to, actually I gave you one out of order. I'm going to go to the Psalm 51 first, That's the, and then the rest of them will be in that same order. Sorry, Sarah. But if you're turning with me today, I'm going to begin starting in Psalm 51, a psalm that David wrote. Again, I feel like I say this a lot, but we're going to look at one like the main story that we're going to dive into today. The main Bible story is like super familiar, and I've preached it several times, and you know, we've gotten different things out of it. But I say that to say, listen, because it came alive again this week, and it was really fresh, and I felt like God was speaking some things through it, and I got some new things out of it. So as soon as I turn to the story. I know if you've heard it already or you already know what happens, it's easy to just check out and start thinking about something else because you think, oh yeah, I already know that. But don't do that. Listen because it's, it's going to speak something to you. Today, I just want to spend a few minutes and talk to you about passion. I'm going to talk about passion or maybe the lack thereof. And what areas in your life are you lacking some passion? Has your passion for God gone away? Your passion for worship, your passion for maybe for a relationship that you're in or maybe your passion for kids or... I don't see a whole lot of passion these days. Not just, I'm not saying like in y'all, I'm calling y'all out, I'm just saying like in people. And when you do see somebody that's very passionate about something, it's kind of refreshing. Or here in the church, when somebody is passionate about the ministry that they're called to, that's refreshing. Because everybody's not. Most aren't. The majority are not. But as God's people, I believe we should have passion. And that God places passion inside of us, and we should go back to... David references this idea of passion or enthusiasm or he calls it the joy of my salvation or different ways it's worded, but it's this idea of, of passion. So we're going to talk about passion in the areas of our life where maybe we had passion one time and we lost it for whatever reason and how we can get it back or if we can get it back. Um, if you look it up, look up the word passion in the Webster's Dictionary, um, one of the definitions in Webster's, it says um, the Jesus in the Bible, the passion of the Christ, and the things that Jesus went through in the Bible. That's one of Webster's definitions for the word passion, is all that Jesus went through. You know, Jesus went through more than we could ever imagine, and he didn't stop. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. It means desire, love. He has a passion for music. She has a passion for kids. I'm talking about love, emotion, passion. So how's your passion for God these days? How's your passion for your personal relationship with God? How's your passion for worship? How's your passion for community? Do you have a passion for people? Helping people, ministering to people. To, like what's, what's your purpose? Because it should involve people. God's passion, God's goal, God's target is people. Humanity. So what's your passion? How's your passion? We spent time the last couple of weeks talking about your future and about faith and hope and stepping into the future that God has for you and being bold. And, and we've talked about living with a spirit of generosity, living with an open hand and, and living the big life that God has for you and not falling into this stingy, smaller and smaller life and... 
and about how God wants us to be real. It's okay to be real with God and it's okay to be real with each other because that's how we find healing. Like, God doesn't give you grace for the you that you pretend to be. You can't find healing for the you that you pretend to be. God gives you grace for you and who you are and for your real struggles and for who you really are. So you can put on a mask and fool me, especially if I don't see you that often, or you can put on a mask and fool other people, but you're not fooling God and He's looking at you and like He can see you pretending. And He's giving you grace to deal with everything that you have to deal with today and tomorrow and the next day. But He's not giving you grace for the person you're pretending to be. And so, yes, things are going to fall apart. Yes, you're going to lose passion. Yes, you're not going to feel it. we got to be real. you got to be the real you. Jesus said, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That word soul that Jesus used there, it can be translated heart, breath, or the real you. Like, what does it matter, Jesus said to the disciples, what does it matter if you gain the whole world? What does it matter if you get cars and money or camels and fishing boats and whatever to them? Like, what does that matter if you build this huge career and you have fame and fortune and you lose you? You lose the breath that I breathe into you. My spirit is not in you. It's, it's not flowing through you. You don't have the power. You don't you lose who I created you to be. What good? Like, what does it matter, Jesus said, if you lose you in the process? Do you know you were created for relationship? You were created for love and passion and life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about. And I think lots of Christians have just lost their passion and just go through the motions. Okay, I'll show up. I'm going to show up to church because I have to show up to church. And I'll just, all right, I'm crack my Bible open every once in a while or maybe even not. Because nobody will know. What does it matter? I was talking to somebody recently. Um, and he, he told me, I'm trying to be careful to not give it away because it's one of y'all and so um, he told me he had lost his passion and I said well when do you think you lost your passion like when do you think the passion in this area went away for you and he, he thought about it for a minute and said when things got bad it was very easy to be passionate when everything was good that was weird recording hit a bad note at that point in time when things got bad so. but that was his answer and then you know and we went on to talk something about it and that got me thinking like yeah that's <laughs> a lot of times that's when we lose it when things get bad it's, it's pretty easy think about a relationship it's pretty easy to be passionate about a relationship when you're dating and you're pursuing that person and stuff but then guess what if you get married and several years down the road some hard stuff happens that you have to walk through then guess what that's an easy time to lose the passion right when something hard happens when something bad happens so as we start out the message I, I want to ask you this question I want you to think about it when did you lose your passion when did you lose your love? Your passion for God, your passion for people, your passion for whatever relationship or for kids or passion for that sport or your passion for your spouse. I need y'all to do something for me real quick. Stop thinking about other people that need to hear this and think about you. Like apply it to you. Because it's really easy for us to think of somebody else that, man, I hope they hear this. I wish they were not out of town and they could hear this. Or, and like we all do it as humans. We're thinking, man, I wish 
so-and-so could hear this because they're not they've lost all their passion and that's a real good sign that we probably need to listen to our, for ourselves so let's let's consciously listen to it for ourselves and hopefully they'll hear it too listen in God's speaking think about yourself when did you lose it was it when you got hurt I started thinking about different people in the Bible that were powerful leaders and different people that that God used in powerful ways that lost their passion. And there were so many, I couldn't even include them all in the message. Almost every one of them I could find at some point in their life, at some point in their ministry, like they lost passion and they had to get it back. And then I started thinking about my own life and I thought of times in my life when I've lost passion and to be quite honest with you, I thought about times I've walked up on this stage and preached and tried to say what I felt like God was saying with no passion because I just didn't feel it. Just being real and honest. And after studying about it all week and reading all kind of Bible verses and looking at all kind of Bible characters, I realized that's just part of being human you're going to lose your passion. So what do we need to know? We need to know that you can get it back and how to get it back and how we lose it. And I've just decided I don't want to live a passionless life. I don't want to do passionless ministry. I don't, I don't want to raise my kids without passion. I don't want to be in a marriage without passion. I don't want to Why? It's my choice. I can choose that. I don't have to live a passionless life. I'm not stuck. Where I am is where I chose to be one decision at a time. Now, whether I knew that's where I was going to end up or not, that's a different story. But the fact that I'm married, the fact that I'm a father, the fact that I'm a pastor, the fact that I raise hogs, whatever it is in my life, it's all due to choices and small steps that I've made along the way and I'm going to choose to have passion so I thought about John the Baptist and John uh, was Jesus' cousin John got Jesus when no one else did really John was probably the only one that really understood Jesus besides maybe his mama Mary I don't even know if stepdaddy got it too much he just kind of an angel showed up and twisted his arm so he went with it Mary got Jesus and knew he was the Son of God, and and so did John, his cousin. John was out there preaching before Jesus was. John was preparing the way and baptizing people and saying, he's coming, the Messiah's coming, and then Jesus came, and you remember the story. John's out there baptizing people, and Jesus, his cousin, comes, and John's like, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, for us to read that, we're like, yeah, cool. We know he was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. But when John said that, nobody knew that. No one. Except Jesus and John. So Jesus is like, man, it's the only person alive on the planet that gets me. He actually knows who I am. The real me. John and Jesus were... They were ministry partners, and, and there was a time that John got thrown in jail and for doing the right thing and for, for standing up for what was right, and he started a prison ministry. And his disciples would come by the jail, and he was still talking to them and stuff. But John lost his passion. Right? John was doubting and wondering, is Jesus really the one? And he sent his disciples back to even ask Jesus, like, were you the one or are we looking for another one? Was it a waste of time? Did I give my life? Like, I might get killed in jail. And he does end up getting his head chopped off. Spoiler. Uh, it didn't turn out great. Like, <laughs> he got his head chopped off and put on a dinner platter and brought to a, to a lady as a prize. It ain't like things were. And John lost his passion and he sent his disciples to go ask Jesus. And I thought about Elijah, one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament that did all kinds of miracles. And he defeated 350 prophets of Baal on a, 
on a mountain and he called down fire from heaven and the fire came and consumed the offering and they killed all these prophets of Baal and all this crazy stuff. Like he was the most powerful guy. And then Jezebel, the king's wife, sent him a letter that said, I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets. You know what happened? He ran away from everybody, left his servant, isolated himself, ran off in the desert, got depressed, and started having suicidal thoughts in a cave by himself. That's one of the most powerful prophets that God had. He just defeated all these people, and then he's, he's in there in the cave, depressed, and he's crying out to God, and, and you know what he's saying? I'm the only one left in the whole world that loves you. I'm the only one that serves you. There's nobody else that's doing good. There's, there's nobody else that's righteous. And God's like, I got a lot of people. You've just disconnected yourself. Go find Elisha. What's God doing? God's saying, go get in relationship with somebody. You see, because John the Baptist, when he lost his passion, was when? When he was thrown in prison, isolated. And Elisha... When he lost his passion was when? When he ran away from everybody by himself in a cave. He started to lose his passion and forget and think I'm the only one and I'm... What about David? Remember King David? Remember David as a boy? He killed Goliath. He had more passion than anyone in all of Israel. He, he was a boy that showed up to bring a cheese pizza to his brothers and... And there was a giant screaming and everybody was scared of him. And what did he do? Took off running down the hill with no armor on. With courage. He didn't even walk towards him. He ran. I got this. There may not have been another, a more passionate person in the Bible than David. But there came a time when he was a king and things got familiar. And, and time went on that the Bible tells us that at the time that kings went to war... When David was supposed to be out fighting, David was supposed to be with his men because he was the warrior king. He stayed at home in a place where he wasn't supposed to be. And he went up on the roof and he looked around and he saw Bathsheba taking a shower and he was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be looking at something he wasn't supposed to look at and he ended up doing something he wasn't supposed to do. They lost passion. He lost his passion. He lost his fight. And Nathan came, the prophet, and, and called him out on it. And David wrote this psalm right after he was called out on his whole Bathsheba affair, got her husband killed. I mean, it was bad. It was real bad. And David writes this psalm right after that. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew it. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, give it back. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David repented. And we know that David got his passion back after that. Did many great things. So the one, the person I want to land on is Peter. Um, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at John 21. And this is after Jesus died on the cross. And we know that Peter, Peter was a big mouth. And Peter did some things great. And Peter had some major failures and major mistakes. And all the way to the end, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus predicted, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to mess up. And he said, never, I'll never do that. And then he did it three times and he even cussed and cursed. And Jesus, tied to the whipping post, getting beat by the soldiers, looked over and made eye contact with him. When he was cussing, saying, I never knew him. Major failure. 
Right, then Peter lost passion. The women were going and checking the tomb. And where was Peter and the other disciples? Locked in the upper room with the doors locked. Why did they have the doors locked? Because they were scared. Because they thought we were wrong about him. He's dead. He wasn't the Messiah. He didn't take over. He didn't kick Rome's butt. So we were wrong. So they lost passion and they were hiding up in the room. So Peter lost his passion for God and for the, the whole Jesus story and the gospel and maybe he's the Messiah and all these things that, that Peter was so passionate about he, he lost it why because the unthinkable happened his best friend was whipped and beaten and murdered and killed and look what happens John 21 and after these things Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the sea of Tiberias and on the wise showed he himself there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and the two other of his disciples. And Simon Peter said unto them, I go fishing. Hey guys, I don't know what to do. Jesus died, now he's apparently raised from the dead, but I've just kind of lost my passion, and I'm just going to go back to what I used to do. I'm going to go back to what I'm good at. I, I just want to, I'm just going to go back to before he called me and before I had that passion, because I don't even know what to do with it. It's gone. I don't, I'm just going to go back fishing. This isn't like me after church if I say, I'm going to go fishing. You're like, okay, cool. He can go down there to the lodge and go fishing. Uh, this is like when you remember when Michael Jordan went and played baseball and then he announced to the press, I'm going back to basketball. That's what this was like. Right, that's what you were created for. That's what you did. That's what he gave his life to. I, this is, Peter says, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And they said unto him, we also go with thee. All right, man, if Peter doesn't have passion to preach and spread this word of the gospel and whatever and he's not even feeling passionate about it then man we're going back to the old life too I guess we'll just follow him and went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing relationship is how you get your passion back you know, all you will have at the end of your life is the lives that you touched and the people that you got to do it with. Money and stuff, and it's here and gone. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Like they couldn't tell it was him. So they went fishing all night. They caught nothing. And here's Jesus standing on the shore. Nobody knew it was him. And, and I want to point out, I was thinking about this. Like they had all lost their passion. They weren't doing anything. They weren't doing miracles yet. They weren't out preaching. They were hiding in the room. Now they're back to fishing. They had all lost their passion. And they knew all of Jesus' teachings. They'd been walking around with him for three years, right? They had seen the miracle. They're the ones that wrote this. Like these, the gospels. So they had all this knowledge in their heads. Or some of it already written down possibly by Matthew or some of the ones that were with him. So they still had the word. They still had the teachings of Jesus, but the person of Jesus was gone. And so they lost their passion. So I just wanted to stop and say that a lot of times knowledge isn't enough. If you've lost the person or the relationship, just because you know a bunch of Bible verses, that's good. Just because you have a knowledge of this is what I need to do, it doesn't equal passion. 
having the person of Jesus there with the disciples is when they were passionate. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have you any meat? And they answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fishes. Well, that sounds kind of familiar. Because this exact same miracle happened when Jesus called Peter and James and John. Exact same thing. They fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus was on the shore. They didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said, hey, cast on the other side. They did what he said. They caught so many fish, they couldn't pull them all in. Exact same thing. Jesus, like, duplicates the miracle. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. When he heard. So he messed up. He lost his passion. But he had people. He was still surrounded by people. John. That told him when he couldn't see it for himself. Say, hey, Peter, um, like I know you've lost your passion, and I know you feel really bad about what you did, and I know you're mad at Jesus for what he did, and I know you're mad at the Romans and whatever, it, it, like you've lost it, but that's him. That's God, and you're missing it. You're laying in the boat naked. You're missing it. John's like, that's him. See, Peter, even though he had lost his passion, he had built such good relationships that he still had people around him that could point it out. Now, we know if we read the next book, the book of Acts, we're going to see these great stories of Peter and John healing a lame man. Just a couple pages over, doing some powerful things together when, when, when they got their passion back. Or when they started doing things again. When they started believing that Jesus was who he said he was. So what was Jesus doing in that part that, that we just read? Why would Jesus do the same miracle? He was, I believe, he was reminding them of where it all started. Why? Because that's the best way that you can get your passion back. Go back to when you had passion. Go back to when the relationship started. Go back to when he first called you. Go back to when you first got saved. And remember, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus did the same miracle because the day that he called them, they were freaking out because of all these fish. And, and Jesus called me. The Messiah wants me to be part of his team. I'm pumped. I'm excited. We're going to change the world. We're going to save our people from oppression. We're going to, all the things that they had going, that was the passion, and so what Jesus do? He, he reminded them by doing the exact same miracle so that Peter, James, and John could remember the day. They could remember the moment. Remember. They say that I read some things on um on passion and how to get your passion back or and one of the main things is to remember or if you're trying to help someone get their passion back it says to remember or to remind them where it all started oftentimes things that are not the point become the point and they steal your passion for instance like uh a kid that's growing up and they love a sport like say football is their passion and they just love it and they want to play football all the time and they got a ball in their hand and they're throwing it around and all they want to do is go play in the NFL and go pro and then it's their passion and they love it and it drives them and it wakes them up in the morning and they go like it's their passion but eventually you can hear story after story after story from professional athletes That'll tell you that like at some point when they made it and 
the focus started being on money or the focus started being on other things or other stuff that they lose their passion for the sport. And so the way to f- regain that passion is to remember, wait, why am I doing this? For the love of the game. It's not whether I get one or two more million dollars on my next year's contract, which seems ridiculous, but how many levels do we do it on? On different scales. It's, it's the whole idea of, well, I've got no passion in my marriage. Well, at one point you had passion, probably when you were pursuing or dating or, you know, before you got married, there, there was probably something there. But then maybe you just got focused on the wrong things for a long time. And things that are not the point became the point. And they steal your passion. It's your focus is off. Look at Colossians 3.23. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. What is it? Just that first line. Like, do it with all your heart. Don't do anything half-heartedly. Don't go into something just barely giving effort. He's saying, whatever you do, do it with everything you've got. And if it's not worth going all in, then don't do it. Do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Whatever you do, when you go to work, you're not working for your boss. He said, you want to be a good Jesus follower? You want to be a good Christian, you want to look like Jesus, then you're doing it for God. It doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're working. If you're doing a ministry, if you're in there watching the three and four class, do it like you're doing it for God. Because you are. When you get up and go to work tomorrow morning, Tyler, don't do it like you're working for Levi. Do it like you're working for Jesus. Imagine he had long hair and a beard. It would help you. You work like you're working for God because ultimately you are. And to be Christians and to to look like what we're supposed to look like, that has to be our focus and our mindset. And that's also what will keep us passionate about what we're doing. You're not going, I'm not going to work for a paycheck. You know how much better of a worker somebody will be when they're coming to work with that mindset or coming to work with the mindset of, This this is my purpose. God's called me to be here. I'm listening for his voice. I'm going to help somebody. I'm going to pray for somebody. Well, that's a whole lot better employee than somebody that's coming in thinking, I'm going to get in here and get my $12 an hour and get home and get some sleep. I mean, you're not a very, like, you're not reliable. Anything better comes up, you're going to go do it. Like it. See, as Jesus followers, we're working as unto the Lord no matter what we're doing. So we got to focus. Remember who you're doing it for. That'll help. You want to restore your passion? Remember who you're doing it for. David had to remember why he was a king. Who called him to be king. Remember, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God, I I forgot who I was. I, I isolated myself. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Remember who you're doing it for. You know what? I can't stand washing dishes. And if I stand there and wash a whole sink full of dishes like I did one night this week, if I sit there and focus on the dishes and the task at hand that I am doing, I can get myself kind of aggravated. When I'm sitting here washing a ninja blender because Sky decided to make himself a slushy two days ago and just threw it in the sink and expected Jesse to wash it. And she's pretty busy, and so the sink piles up, and then I got 
you know, two of Titus's pizza plates. And so if I'm sitting there focusing on the task at hand, I'm sitting there thinking, well, how hard would it have been for Scott to rinse out this blender and put it back up where it goes? And how hard would it have been for Titus to put those dishes, rinse them out and put them in the dishwasher so now they didn't have to be scrubbed because stuff's caked in the bottom? And how hard would it, like, so you don't focus on the task at hand. I know if I didn't take the time to wash those two sinks full of dishes, which took me a little while, and dried out my hands, I had to put on lotion. If I didn't take the time to wash those dishes, I knew that that would fall on Jessie and that she would have to do it and that she was really tired because she was doing some extra things lately. And so while I wash the dishes, if I remind myself to focus on not the task at hand or what I'm doing or should I have to be doing this or should I not or whose fault is it that this happened, or if I just focus on that who I'm doing it for, then I can do it with a cheerful heart because I can know, hey, it's something I can take off her plate because she's got a lot on her plate. And so then guess what? I'm happy to do that because I want to do that because I have a passionate relationship with my wife. That's what this verse is trying to tell us about God and our spirit. And like, don't focus on the task at hand because a lot of tasks that we have to do every day are not glamorous or glorious or some are annoying and hard and we don't want to do them and but we don't focus on the task at hand we focus on who we're doing it for we focus on the why and if you're doing it for God then you're going to do it with some excellence you're going to do it with passion if God walked in the room the person of Jesus and we just all knew it was him because our spirits connected with him and asked us to do something I doubt there's is there anything you wouldn't do if you just knew in your heart, man, this is God in the flesh. I'd, I'd gladly do whatever he said. So we don't focus on the task. We, we focus on the who. Focus on the why. If you make a decision to only focus on the positive... Like, only focus on positive things. Then you're going to feel much better about yourself. Like yesterday, somebody called me pretty. And I felt great. Made my whole day. Actually, the full statement was, you're pretty annoying. But like I said, I only focus on the positive. <laughs> I feel pretty. <laughs> What you choose to focus on, it makes all the difference in your passion. You get to choose what you focus on, and it makes all the difference whether you're passionate or not. And I, we can be talking about a relationship or a ministry or a, you can go down the list, but what you choose to focus on every day, every moment, every minute, it makes all the difference in the world where your passion is concerned. Okay, look at Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 4. This is John's vision, but it's God talking or Jesus talking. Um, he says this to the church in Ephesus. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Like remember where you came from and repent or change directions, turn around and what? Do the things you did at first. He's saying, hey, you lost your first love. You lost your first passion. It, it's not, you're not on fire like you were, like you used to be. So he makes it super simple. He said, hey, just repent. Like, change what you're doing and just go back and do the things you used to do. When you had that passion, when you had that fire, uh, when you felt alive, go back and go back to that. What if I don't feel like it? Do it anyways. Your feelings will follow. It's a choice. But what if I don't have time? 
to give or serve or to do that? Or what if, what if I don't have time to wash that sink full of dishes? Or what if I don't have money to give, to help somebody or to give in the offering or to whatever? Then I would say be very intentional with what you do have. Passionate people are intentional people. And they don't waste moments. I started thinking about yesterday, what, what makes something valuable? Like, what is it that makes something valuable? It's when it's rare. When it's hard to find. There are only very few, then they're more valuable. Right? It makes it more valuable. I heard this story about... Um, so Babe Ruth signed who knows how many home run baseballs. Tons of them. They're out there all around, horrible condition up to perfect condition, and they're worth a pretty good bit of money. I signed Babe Ruth baseball. But Babe Ruth only ever signed seven home run bats, ever in his whole life. There are only seven of them out there. So it's documented where six of those were. And one was known by collectors and everybody that loves baseball and anybody that knows, like it was known as the missing home run bat. They knew that he had signed one more and it was somewhere and nobody knew where it was. And so there was this older gentleman and he, I didn't write down the, the year, but it was a few years back. Um, he was getting sick and towards the end of his life and didn't have any family. And so he had to hire a nurse to come in and take care of him. And so she would come in and he got this lady coming and they kind of formed a relationship and she was great. She took care of him and she sat and talked to him and she treated him with respect and dignity and she just did her job very well. And um, so there at the last week when he knew that he was dying and they were pretty much just making him comfortable, he called her in and said, hey, I wanna give you something. Um, just to say thank you for taking care of me so well and going above and beyond and doing what you didn't have to do and I felt your love and I don't have any family and you just, you feel like family to me over the last however long she had been working for him and you've become family to me. And she was like, no, sir, I, I get paid to do my job and I just, I do my job well with excellence. You don't owe me anything. I don't, I don't need anything. I'm good. I really do. I think of you as family too. And he said, no, I want to give you this. And he pulls out the Babe Ruth signed baseball bat, the missing bat, and she had no clue what it was. She didn't even know baseball, whatever. She saw a signature on it, but didn't even realize. She's like, oh, thank you, an old wooden bat with some black stuff around the handle. Wow. And she was like, thank you so much. She took it home and put it under her bed in her apartment for protection. I'll keep it under there for a weapon if I ever need it. And for the next 18 years, she worked her job. She says that she struggled off and on financially and tried to, you know, raise her kids and lived her life with that bat shoved up under her bed in her apartment. She always had a dream of opening a restaurant, but financially she never could figure that out and become a business owner because it would take so much money to get a business started. And so she worked her 12-hour shifts and she was okay, but never, like, like I said, she struggled some throughout life. So one, after 18 years, she finally retired from her job and she decides to like clean out her apartment and figure out what she's going to do in her retirement and the rest of her life. And she pulls out that old bat and remembered it and was like, I wonder if that's even worth anything or who, what this signature and stuff. So she took it down the road to a, like a sports memorabilia shop she lays it on the counter and says to the guy, is this worth anything? I don't even, I don't know. Somebody gave it to me a while ago and he was like, no way. That cannot be. He said, would you mind if I call some, an expert and like we get this looked at and authenticated and sure enough, they got it checked out and it was the seventh bat that Babe Ruth signed and he, she said, well, how much will you give me for it? And he said, I would be ripping you off if I even made you an offer. I'll give you the information and you can just put it on an auction. 
And so she put it on auction and she got one point, I think $1.3 million for the bat. It was one point something million dollars for a bat that's been laying under her bed for 18 years while she struggled. This man had given her this gift that could have bought her a restaurant, paid her employees for the first year, set her up in the business of her dream, like whatever. Right? And it's been underneath her bed. But what made that bat so valuable was there was only seven of them. Like there weren't a bunch of them out there. There were only a few. You know, if gold was just laying around everywhere and every creek bed was full of gold and rocks, then gold wouldn't be expensive. We would make driveways out of it and fill potholes with it. If it was just everywhere, like little pieces of rock and gravel. No, what makes it valuable is there's not much of it. It's hard to find. Where am I going with all this? If you don't have much time, then the time that you do have is valuable. It's precious. So be careful how you spend it. Protect it like you would something valuable. Don't waste it. What about money? Same thing. It kills me when people say, yeah, one day when I'm going to have enough money, I'm going to give something and help out the church. And what, one day when I get rich or when I become a millionaire, I'm going to help the church build a basketball court out there for the teenagers. And one day, no, you're not. Like if you only have a little bit, so one dollar is a sacrifice, then you give the one dollar. Right? When you're rich, you know, when, I don't know how rich you're planning on getting. I was about to say $10,000, but if you're getting real rich, that might not even be a sacrifice for Whatever's a sacrifice for you. If you're going to be generous, if you don't feel it, then is that generosity? So if you don't have much, it doesn't mean just don't give it. Still get Hebrews 12.1. I need to wrap this up. Let's wrap it up. Hebrews 12.1. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it. Strip down and start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Sorry, my paper was folded. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again and again. Item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Need some passion? Writer of Hebrews tells us, here's how you do it. Check your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus and go over what he did. Go over his story, what he did for you. Go over the story of Jesus over and over and over and over. And what will that do? Shoot adrenaline into your souls. I'm pretty sure a soul shot full of adrenaline is a passionate soul. So where's your focus? Who are you doing it for? Back to John 21 and finish this story about Peter and, and we're done. John 21, verse 14. This is now the third time. Remember, they just caught all these fish and Peter jumped in and swam to Jesus and Jesus already had food cooking. Verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, 
son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And there's some debate on more than these, what the these were. Like, did he point at the other disciples? Do you love me more than these guys? I honestly think maybe he pointed at all the fish. Do you love me more than these? Like, do you love me more than your old life and what you went back to, your passionless existence? Do you love me more than these? And he said unto him, Yeah, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Then feed my lambs. Feed my people. Don't don't have no passion and go back to this boat and lead all of the other disciples back. Then I need you to do something. You got a purpose. I need you to feed the lambs. And he said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Yeah, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. And he said unto him, Then feed my sheep, serve my people. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved. Peter started feeling some emotions, like it took Jesus three times to start stirring up some emotion in him. And, and we've talked about before that, you know, Jesus gave him three times because Peter denied three times and then Jesus gave him three times to like redeem himself or to restore it but Jesus on this third time it says that Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time lovest thou me but this lovest that Jesus used there it's they're all translated lovest but Jesus was using different words Jesus used a different word there than he used the first two times he asked him. And it moved Peter. He said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, Then feed my sheep. How do I get my passion back? Through relationship. Relationship with God and people and not just the ones like you all people people that need help the ones that are in the ditch according to Jesus' story about the good Samaritan so the first two times that Jesus asked him Peter do you love me and Peter said yeah you know I love you the first two times Jesus uses the word agape and it was just all translated lovest but the first two times Jesus uses the word agape which is God's love and it is God's love and we can have God's love in us and we can share God's love with people but it's a love that needs nothing in return it's a love that you can't earn, you can't buy. It doesn't need someone else to love back so that it will love. Like we've talked, I think I've preached a whole message about agape love. Well, that's the word that Jesus uses the first two times. Hey, Peter, do you love me? With God's love, an unconditional love, a love. And he said, yeah, you know I do, you know I do. But then this third time that Jesus asked him, Jesus changed up what he asked him. Jesus didn't just say it a third time. This time, Jesus uses the word phileo. Hey, Peter, do you phileo me? This is a brotherly love. This is a love shared between humans and not a romantic love. It's a love like you would have for a friend or a family member or church member or for each other. It's a phileo love. And the other meaning for the word phileo is kiss. It is to kiss. So the third time what Jesus is asking Peter, he says, Jesus said, hey, Peter, do you love me? Agape, do you love me? And the third time, can you love me in people? See, we know Peter had an anger problem, and, and I feel like Peter was probably just really struggling. That the, the Pharisees turned on him, and the Romans did that to him, and things didn't turn out like he thought, and Judas betrayed him, and now he can't even go beat up Judas because 
Judas had done his own thing and ended it and all this stuff. And, and so Jesus is like, do you love me? And Peter's like, you know I love you. Like, do you love me? And he said, you know, you know I love you. I, I feel God's love from you and I've got God's love. Like I love God. Me and God are good. And then, then Jesus said, okay, cool, but can you love me and people? And a kiss. Can you kiss my body? Will you feed my sheep? Will you feed my lambs? Will you minister to my people? And Peter got emotional and moved him. He said, yeah, yeah, I can. I will. In Matthew 14, 12, we won't turn there because I'm, I'm ending. It's where Jesus had just gone through the hardest time of his life and he had lost his cousin, got the unexpected news while he was out on a ministry tour that John had gotten his head chopped off and Jesus got pretty upset about it. And you can go read it. Um, but in Matthew 14, Jesus gets the news and he's upset and he comes across the sea and it says, when he saw the people and their need and that they were hungry and he was filled with compassion and he began to minister and pray to he, he prayed to God and then he began to minister to people and, and meet their needs and to help them with what they needed and something even as simple as feeding their hunger. Jesus gives us a perfect example of how to go through pain and still have passion and minister. It's what he's calling Peter to do feed people let love out if it's in you okay good agape love's in you you've received God's love for you cool will you let it seep through the cracks of your brokenness remember when Lazarus died and, and the Bible tells us that Jesus wept Jesus cried like he allowed himself to feel that even though he was about to raise him from the dead he feels your pain he knows what it's like to lose somebody. We do not have a high priest who is not easily touched the feelings of our infirmity. Like he's felt everything that we felt. He's gone through the things that we go through. No, I've lost people. And it's hard. I've lost passion and it's hard. I've lost a lot of things and I know you have too. Sometimes you just need somebody to cry with you, feel your pain, to laugh with those that laugh and mourn with those that mourn. And you need somebody to tell you what I'm going to tell you today to end the message. God's love works. It'll restore and forgive and heal. And His love still works. No matter what you've done or no matter where you've been. or No matter how long it's been or maybe you've never even had passion for the things of God. Maybe you've never had passion for ministry or worship or purpose or, or anything. That's okay. See, this love that I'm talking about meets you where you are. It's God's love and it's a love for people. Jesus said to Peter what I'm saying to you today do you love God yeah if your answer is yeah yeah I love God yeah I appreciate God I, I know that he forgave me then the second thing that he asked will you kiss his body will you help somebody will you minister to somebody will you share that love will you show that love that's how you'll find your passion. There was a man named uh, Richard Selzer. He was an American surger, surgeon and author. And he writes about this surgery that he performed on this young couple. They were, he didn't perform the surgery on the couple. But he writes about the young couple. He had to perform a surgery on this 20-something-year-old girl and she had a tumor in the side of her face and connected to part of her jaw. 
and he was going to have to remove that tumor. And he talked to them about the real dangers of the surgery, but they had to remove it. Um, but the reality was there's almost no way to remove it without permanently damaging the nerves on her face and around her mouth. And they didn't know what that was going to look like, but they had to do it. So, you know, she agreed and they put her to sleep and he did the surgery as careful as he could and it went as good as possible. But they severed one of the main nerves that controls your mouth and lip. And so after she came to, her mouth was very crooked and stuck and like just not how it used to be. And the surgeon writes that he stood in the room for support as she woke up and the only other person in the room was her husband on the other side of the bed. And they just sat there staring into each other's eyes and she looks at the surgeon after seeing in a mirror and said, will this go back to normal? And he said, I'm so sorry, but there, I did the best I could, but to get the tumor, the nerve was severed and no, that's, that's just how it is. And tears filled her eyes and she looked back at her husband and he stared into her eyes and he says, I think it's kind of cute. And so the surgeon writes that for the first time he saw God in the human body as he watched the most intimate moment he's ever seen. The husband leaned down to give her a kiss and as he did, as he got close to her, the surgeon watched the husband deform his own mouth crooked so that his lips matched up with hers and they shared a passionate kiss and they both cried and the surgeon walked out the door and bawled his eyes out and wrote this story about what he saw uh, and the husband said after after he kissed her he said the kiss still works and they both hugged So today, I think I was supposed to end the message by telling you that the kiss still works. God's love works. And that our gospel better be one that, that will adjust to meet people where they are. The gospel doesn't expect broken people to form to its standards. If, if we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then that means that our gospel will adjust to meet people where they are. Right? That, that we adjust our lips to match theirs. And, and I know there's areas in your life where there's been some severed nerves and there's some areas where there's just no feeling and there's some areas where you don't have any passion anymore. And you feel like it'll never be back and it could never be healed. And, and that nerve, it's, it's a permanent damage. And, and I want to tell you today that it's okay because the God that we serve and the gospel that we represent, it will adjust. See, our God's so big that He can work all things together for our good. And He'll meet you right where you are and use everything that you've been through. And even those areas that are severed, that will never grow back. Those areas that, the areas where you were abused or the areas where you made a mistake or the areas where this gospel and this God is so good that it'll meet you there. It still works. The kiss still works. His love still works. The gospel still works. He factors in your humanity. And his love will meet you where you are. Let's pray. 
God, thank you. God, thank you that you meet each one of us where we are. God, I thank you that just like the prodigal son, as soon as we we turn our hearts toward home, that you see us coming from a long ways, you've been waiting on us, and that you come and run and meet us. God, I thank you that your love works. God, I ask you to light some fires today. Give us a new passion. Reignite things that have gone out long ago. Give us new passions and new dreams. Help us to focus and remember who we're doing it for. Not get caught up on the the task at hand or the details, but that we would focus on you and remember who and why we do what we do. God, give us enough to help somebody else. God, we love you. We accept your love. And we can love each other too. God, we thank you for relationship with you and for relationship with each other. Help us to continue to grow and be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.